0: This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. This is Dr. Jonathan Abel, and we're here today with a very special episode on the road at the 2023 Consortium on the Revolutionary Era meeting. Uh, The consortium was founded back in the 70s uh, in the, the southeast as a conference focused on history, particularly military history, between 1750 and 1850, centering on the Napoleonic and French Revolutionary periods. I've been lucky enough today to sit down with some of my friends and colleagues and talk about that period. Uh, So the first discussion will be with Dr. Alexander Mikabritza and Jack Gill talking about logistics in the Napoleonic period. And the second will be with Dr. Alexander Burns on soldiers' lives and some of the wider currents in historiography, particularly of the 18th century. Hope you enjoy it. I am here with two eminent Napoleonic historians, Dr. Alex Mikobritza, who is a Florida State grad and a professor of history at LSU Shreveport, along with being a curator of the Knoll Collection. Dr. Mikobritza, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And also with Jack Gill, who's a graduate of George Washington University and a retired 27-year armor military intelligence foreign area army officer, as well as being a uh, employee at the Near East South Asia Center and the double
1: Thanks very much. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, and so um, both of these men are, as I mentioned, eminent Napoleonic historians, as well as ranging over a wide area of other specialties. Um, and they both have been working on issues uh, particularly related to logistics. And uh, Dr. Mikubritza ranges uh, of French, Russian, other armies, and uh, Professor Gill works uh, largely with uh, German-speaking armies. So, so if both of you could kind of talk a little bit about what early modern logistics look like. I think we're familiar with modern logistics with lots of trucks and, and you know, contractors. But what do logistics look like between, you know, 1780 and
1: 1815? Messy. <laughs> right? I, I think the, the thing that strikes me perhaps the most, having spent time in the Army, is the expectation that, or the the low expectations of what the Army would provide you and the necessity for uh, what we would think of as relatively junior operational commanders so division commanders, corps commanders, people of that nature to have cash on hand because they had to pay for services or pay for goods from local populations. So whereas today we expect that if you're injured or you're wounded, uh, the army takes care of you. You don't have to take care of yourself. But in the Napoleonic era and other eras of that nature, if you were an officer and you had money, your chances of surviving a wound or illness were much better because you could be taken care of by either your regimental surgeon or a local doctor and you could pay someone to put you up in their house and you wouldn't have to be in a hospital. So these kinds of things that the military did not routinely provide uh, really strike me as being very different. Or in the case we had today of talking about the Austrian army, uh, the only provided ration for soldiers was bread. They got to pay supplement to buy meat from the wandering herds that (laughs) accompanied the army, (laughs) but the only thing that the army routinely provided, allegedly for free, was bread. Mm
2: Yeah, and uh, I think another kind of interesting aspect is something that um, Jack and I have been uh, talking and researching for quite some time, and it is uh, logistics within the um, coalition warfare. Mm. Um, and then Jack has done research on the Austrian side, I've done on the Russian side, and we kind of look at the same problem from different perspective. <laughs> but, and you see oftentimes on, on the Russian side, the frustration that the uh, they are, you know, Fellow allies promise this many deliveries of supplies uh, on this moment in time, uh, and and then of course when that doesn't happen, it kind of creates a, a, a lot of frustration. And as, as to echo what Jack was saying, uh, you know when the Russian army is going on on campaign against the. Um, French in, in, in collaboration with Austrians, they are dependent on Austrians for the logistical support and they've done it in 1799, they will do it in 1805, 1813, and when that logistical support is not working well, it directly affects the military effectiveness, it, it, it then translates into distrust mis- between the allies and really confounds the problem. Uh, so. To we, you know, I think here we're in an echo chamber that we <laughs> all agree that logistics are fundamental, <laughs> right? And which is why we, I think, we are frustrated that uh, not sufficient attention has been paid to the logistics. We've tried to do that in our own, um, I think, in our own kind of separate uh, books and, and, and publications, but there needs to be a more comprehensive look at it.
0: So let's dive into that that issue with uh, research. Um, that- I think anybody who knows anything about military history or military affairs, whether it's, it's experientially or research-wise, understands the importance of logistics. And yet, logistics are often under or not at all studied. So, so how do you have that kind of dissonance? On the one hand, we all know they're important, but on the other hand, nobody wants to actually write books about them. Because it's a, it's a tedious...
2: Uh, human's job to do to, to, to sort through uh, what is a really mountain of, of data. Um, I've done research on the French side. I've done research on the Russian side, and actually, for one of the books that uh, I have in, in works, I've, I've have about thirteen thousand pages from the Austrians, uh, Austrian archives, uh, uh, well, the 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 military archive. So you're going to sift through that thousands of thousands of, kind of pages in order to have maybe a couple of entry points in a, in a large data file, right? Um, our good friend, uh, Frederick Schneid, who is working on the logistics of, of the French army, he's been spending last several months kind of counting boots. <laughs> Counting sucks, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not as it's exciting, <laughs> right? right. It's, yeah, it's not. Drums so I and think Trump, part something. is kind of the the very tediousness of the process, um, but it underpins much of what we say as military historians. Uh, uh, to 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 go back to eighteen oh five campaign, the when the Russians are trying to get in time to support Austrians against Napoleon, who ultimately triumphs at Ulm and Austerlitz, and we all talk about those triumphs. Well, what is kind of the this, this darker side of it is that the Russian army doesn't have boots, that many of the soldiers who make it all the way to Bavarian border actually are uh, literally bare right? They, they, their boots are gone. So how do you fight the war and
1: defeat the god of war, right, <laughs> <laughs> when, <laughs> when you, when you have no shoes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the other another angle is that many of the things that were taken for granted in those days, no one wrote about. So some of the mechanics, and Alex and I were discussing this earlier, it's as if, I mean, I live in Virginia, so it's as if some general showed up in Fairfax County, Virginia, and said, oh, I, need, I demand 3,000 automobiles tomorrow. Well, how would the authorities in Fairfax County gather up 3,000 cars? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. so, well, the same thing happens in 1809 or 1813 or 1805, that generals of whatever army, French, Russian, Prussian turn up and say, well, we, uh, you have to feed uh, 30,000 men and uh, we, uh, you're going to billet uh, 10,000 of those in your town. Uh, well, how does, what are the mechanics for that? I mean, one of the things Germans complain about constantly is what they call Vorspanndienst. Well, this doesn't even have a good translation into English, but it basically means the provision of teams of horses to draw wagons. And the, that meant that farmer Franz is out of his he- horse Mm-hmm. and his wagon, and maybe Farmer Franz himself has to drive the wagon loaded with French provender from point A to point B and, and to feed the army. And yeah. how does he get back? And yeah. does he get paid? How does that all what are the, all the mechanics there? And, and because it was ordinary, no one writes about it.
3: Mm-hmm. The,
1: if you're looking at, uh, I mean Alex points out the mountains of data, if you're looking at fortresses the, the provisions in fortresses I mean, I've looked, just looked at the French side, are very well recorded. I mean, there's, there's reams and reams and reams of data on how much aquavit, how many pounds of rice or, or uh, wood and, and, and mm-hmm. wheat and flour and everything else. It's harder to do for armies on the move, but I think right. that data is also there, but it would just be tons and tons of material to troll through. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I think one of the uh, also interesting aspect to it, which maybe has, has been overlooked, is the logistics uh, is, is is also interesting to study and, and challenging to study is the relationship with the civilian population, yeah, yeah. and uh, kind of goes back to your kind of unwrittenness, not not necessarily uh, fleshed out in, in, in detail. You will see some of it maybe in memoirs, but um, you you know how do you uh, extract these resources from a population that is hostile to you and and mm-hmm. and, and to keep it from. Uh, from it becoming an insurgent population, so there's some uh, data points kind of in, in general orders that that survive and is there, uh, but there's a lot that is kind of in between the lines that you have to extrapolate or see kind of the, the 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 end result and then um, rebuild it based on it, and so it, it's also kind of methodological also a challenge for anyone working in the logistics.
1: And the, this relationship with the civilian population can go in various directions. So the the French get a bad reputation in many cases, but it might also be with your allies. So French troops who who misbehave or or abuse Germans who are technically allied to France, or in 1813, say Russians, who Radetzky complains about at great length in Bohemia, Mm -hmm. in Austria, their supposed ally, that they sort of... Build it themselves wherever they like uh, regardless of what they're told to do and once they you know, eat out the entire area then boop okay they move on somewhere else mm-hmm. I just oh, I just translated a, a, a set of Russian memoirs they called it borrowing borrowing oh, yeah. did they give it back <laughs> and, and as we as we discussed in our talk today Redetsky all again in 1809 as the Austrians are retreating through Austria I mean through the mm-hmm. real proper Austria not even Hungary or you know, uh, other crown lands, uh, Rodetsky's in the rear guard and he and this other fellow named Mesko complain bitterly because all of the preceding Austrian troops have consumed everything to be found and the villagers have taken to the hills, they can't be located, there's no food, and so mm-hmm. the, they're plundering their own people and depriving their own rear guard of assets as the French are coming on after them. So mm-hmm. you can imagine what the French found and it leads to all kinds of discipline problems.
0: Right, no, certainly. And this is an issue in, in uh, pre-Napoleonic France, too, that often the, the most predacious that the French are is in France. <laughs>
1: yes.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about uh, some of the details of logistics at the time. Um, so in my own period, in the old regime, the the logistics systems are essentially privatized. Mm. They're run by, by um, groups called commissaires, uh, who are the officials, and then there are munitionaires, who are private enterprises. Um, and, and basically, the government contracts with the munitionaire. The, the commissaire writes the contract. The munitionaire takes it, and then they provide all of the logistical stuff. Uh, one of the big innovations Napoleon makes in France is to at least um, notionally nationalize supply in right around 1800. But of course, we're talking about a wide array of armies, some of which we like to describe as old regime. So, so what is what is the the kind of the government to soldier Mm -hmm. uh, chain for these armies?
2: Well, in in France, uh, I think even with Napoleonic changes, you still have the munitionnaires surviving. In fact, um, you know the the gentleman that uh, I've discussed earlier today, uh, Gabriel Julien Ouvrar is the uh, this munitionnaire par excellence in that. He, su- he supplies the entirety of the French Navy. He actually becomes the chief supplier to the Spanish Navy. Um, and, and he's also recruited to su- provide supplies for the uh, French troops going to Spain. So we talk about uh, an, in- an individual who would have been o- presiding what we today kinda can call military supply complex, right? right. Uh, 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 he would have, he sub- subcontracted many of his things to smaller individuals on a mm-hmm. local level. But there is a very interesting relationship between the state, which as you pointed out, Napoleon creates a, a more vertically integrated system and the private enterprise. Uh, similar but not to that degree kind of uh, uh, relationship is in the Russian army where uh, Russian army has a, a rather vertically integrated uh, its own intendency and in supply services but on the campaign oftentimes they reach out to local uh, commercial interests. So for example when they're fighting in 1805 or sorry 1806, 1807 in Poland, a lot of supplying is done through the local uh, merchants. To serve as intermediaries, where the general tells them, Okay, I need those 3,000 automobiles, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I need 2,000 pounds, mm-hmm. and the local merchant then goes out and factually secures and brings it back. Uh, and, and of course, that breed, you know, the, it, it, it's a relationship that can be uh, um, prone to abuse. And of course, there's a lot of accusations thrown against, for example, uh, Commander in Chief of the Russian Army, Levin Benningsen, that he cut deals with the merchants and then kind of made money on the side off the backs of his own soldiers.
1: Yeah, and in the, in the Austrian case, uh, you had sort of parallel with the military commander, you'd have usually a civilian government official who was the commissary, and he would be the one writing the contracts or, or and, and at different levels locally, say, if you, when they invaded Bavaria in 1805, locally. Or also in Austria during peacetime, that there would be a, a, an interface between the uniformed military and the local contractors who would supply the regiment in garrison. Um, but yes, you had uh, these large uh, brokers who, when you say, "Oh, well, we need ten thousand horses," and for us in the twenty-first century here, the idea that you know, the idea of ten thousand horses at all is pretty astonishing, and the fact that you would just, I mean, the Bavarians in eighteen thirteen. They say, well, we, we need 3,000 horses, so what do we do? Well, we can buy some from this Austrian broker and we have some here at home. Uh, none of them are trained. Uh, they're not broken and ready for use, but that's how we're going to acquire them, buying them locally or requisitioning them locally and then buying them through some uh, Austrian guy who, uh, who had access to horse farms.
2: Another kind of, to, to um, echo what Jack was saying, in 1812, of course, when Napoleon goes into Russia and, you know, they, they have this protracted uh, protracted campaign, um, oftentimes, kind of from a logistical point of view, one of the interesting aspects is that in, um, in, in September, October of 1812, as a, as a way of rebuilding their cavalry um, capacity, and especially uh, the light cavalry, the Russian government actually reached out to the nomadic tribes of Central Asia. Hmm and kind of struck this kind of relationship where the nomads would provide a certain number of uh, horses and uh, in in exchange to you know kind of the payments and and the safety and and ultimately that results in creation of 26 uh, uh, regiments of light cavalry so we Mm -hmm. talk about about same size kind of 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 large (laughs) herds of horses Mm -hmm. that are brought from all the way from what is today northern kazakhstan uh, re, re, you know, outfitted for the campaign against yes, the point So it doesn't need to be necessarily a s- relationship between a local commander and a merchant or a state and mm-hmm. uh, the munitioners. It can be also kind of uh,
0: a relationship between a state and client society or client mm-hmm. states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, that you bring up another point I think is worth discussing. We have a very um, almost jingoistic view of the way war works, right? Where your war is your national war effort, and uh, you know, in our ideal American image of war, you hate the enemy because they're evil, right? Uh, but in these wars, you, you've, you both mentioned several times, one of the most common ways to supply and warehouse sustainment was to do it locally, so the French, under Napoleon, you know, everybody's great enemy, they'll roll into, say, Bavaria, and they'll contract with a local Bavarian to buy his warehouses, to store enemy army supplies in those warehouses, and that will be part of the war effort. So how does that, how does that system work? What, what, who are these merchants, and why are they willing to do business with an invading army?
2: Oh, that's a tough question in, in that it's a, well, I'm it's, a tough, it's a complex question because it actually goes not just to the heart of, let's say, human motivation, you know, greed, You know, channeling the inner gecko. Like, <laughs> greed is good, right? Um, not just that, but it's also kind of socio- sociocultural element to it. For example, uh, um, uh, Dr. Schneid that uh, I've, I've mentioned earlier. And I, we've been talking uh, about the, the the many of the suppliers uh, in Poland uh, for both French and the Russian army are actually local Jews, um, which of course adds a, a separate kind of social mm-hmm. and cultural and economic dimension to the
0: realities of war. Same for Friedrich II in Prussia. A mm-hmm. main supplier was Jewish.
2: Jewish, uh-huh. Um, And then in Russian experiences in the Danubian uh, Danubian principalities of what is today Romania, parts of Serbia, uh, even all all the way to to Bulgaria, Uh, there you see kind of the incentives uh, um, of carrot and a stick, where the carrot is uh, this promise that, hey, we've come here, fellow uh, Orthodox Slavs, right, to help you in uh, the state being, you know, the guy that I, I recently wrote a book on, he is aghast, shocked. I say, right, shocked that these local merchants are not showing sufficient zeal in providing <laughs> right. supplies. So he has a few of them arrested <laughs> and then kept under on the, under on the detention as a way of kind of teaching the, the rest of them how to show the proper right. zeal, how <laughs> to be proper so yeah. like <laughs> right, right.
1: In, uh, in the case of, uh, say, the French in Germany, where uh, most of the German states east of the Rhine up to the Elbe River were eventually French allies, the French would uh, usually work through the local government. So say they're in Bavaria, their demand would go to the king of Bavaria. So rather than, saying going to a local broker or commercial firm, mm-hmm. they'd go to the king, and then it would be up to the king to say, okay, well, the French demand so many yards of cloth and so many shoes and so many biscuits and you know, the city of Augsburg is going to deliver those uh, in the, some fashion or another.
0: Which is not necessarily too different from a multinational coalition today. Yeah. Yes.
1: In fact, it's, it's interesting to me because the uh, oftentimes the, the Confederation of the Rhine, the Rheinbund, Napoleon's German allies, are treated as if they were all... S- s- servile vassals of the great emperor and it's actually more complex they had agency too, especially the larger ones and they could negotiate with Napoleon to a degree depending on their own and they're all different so they all have different relations with the, with France so it's an interesting an interesting mm-hmm. angle mm-hmm. Um, and everybody complained if you were on a main line of communication say I mean, this because I'm looking at Germans today the or the term is 1813 the if you're on the main line of communications then your town is is, is quartering soldiers think of the united states what's one of the major major complaints you're mm-hmm. quartering french soldiers or german allied soldiers almost every day Right. Uh, as these guys are transiting from France to Saxony, where the war is going on,
0: and it's important to point out, quartering does not just mean they sleep in your barn. No, it means you pay for their upkeep.
1: You pay for their upkeep. You are required, depending on the whatever was negotiated with the local government, you you the citizen. So, you're. You're now housing ten French soldiers who you never have seen before and may not speak any of your language, and you're supposed to feed them. And there's a whole; there'll be a whole list of well, they get a, a quart of beer a day and so much ri- rice and brandy. And the brandy was a thing in the morning, uh, mm-hmm. and so much bread, etc., etc. And that's all up to you, you know, peasant Franz or, right. or you know, townsman townsman uh, Gunter. You know, it's right. your job. Um,
2: I know that the Russian officers in 1813 were complaining that the the darn Germans always ate soup. And they didn't <laughs> want that soup, vegetable <laughs> soup. <laughs> like, how much of
1: this wasse soup uh, can we take? <laughs> yep. But of course, that's a cheap way of getting out of it. <laughs> yes, yes. Or maybe they had nothing yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, uh, I, yeah.
2: I think one of the sides to this story that is um, kind of to add the even greater complexity is how all of this is paid for. Yes. Because it's, uh, you know, the system um, in, in practice is that, you know, even. And kind the of requisitioning. Uh, ultimately, you, you know, you give, you, you're given an IOU and then uh, if you are if you're not paid right, outright, which very rarely they did, but uh, that IOU needs to be kind of honored. And so that then opens kind of a separate side of the logistics, and that is the the war finances, sure. which which is quite fascinating to, to look at, both in in the states like Austria that uh, that that is a kind of multi-ethnic, uh, right, multi kind of regional a- entity that has its own peculiar experiences, right, regionally, or Napoleonic system that would be more kind of imperial construct. Uh, and and as, as Jack was alluding, that it, it, that war financing that goes back to the issue of how much you can really extract from the vassal states, mm-hmm.
0: even though you know those vassal states have their own interest in their agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's also a kind of a ground truth problem in a couple of ways. One of those, as you talk about with finances, uh, this is a problem old regime governments have. How much do the people have? How much can we take? Well, the, the joke is, you know, the moles get rich when the tax collectors come around. Uh, but the other, I think another problem that's, that's worth talking about, so one of the mistakes we make about Napoleonic armies is that they generally are not pillaging. They're not just outright taking stuff. Uh, sometimes they do, but that's not the plan they're supposed to requisition, they're supposed to take things and then a finance official comes by and pays for the things later. But, you know, we know soldiers no matter the era, so that's the ideal What's the reality on the ground for the soldier? You mentioned Russian soldiers mm-hmm. missing boots. You mentioned officers not happy with what they have available. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they just outright take horses in particular, or mules. So, so what's, the, what's the kind of ground truth reality as these armies are on campaign and, and maybe the systems start to break down after a few months? Harsh, but, yeah, right? harsh. I think
1: you do then end up with the plunder and the pillage and uh, the. Well, you know, yeah. Someday maybe somebody will pay for the cow we took or the or the pig that we found, and the armies even even when soldiers were punished because the every commander recognized this sort of thing led to indiscipline, uh, desertion, marauding, uh, not enough guys in the line when it came to combat, uh, but the if the commissary system didn't provide food then oftentimes they would look the other way and, well or, soldiers
0: have to eat right
1: right and so even but in, even if they imposed punishments and you might have an exemplary execution or uh, the french didn't do flogging the like the british did but if you if you had some exemplary executions the soldiers are still hungry you know it's mm. so, okay you you killed jean baptiste uh, of, of the 114th de ligne but uh, you know, that didn't mean anybody else got bread that
0: day. Yeah, you still need 3,000 pounds of bread.
1: Right. So it's, um, it's, a, real, it's a real challenge. And, and again, you, everybody, every ruler wanted to be treated like an ally, not like an enemy. Because the mm-hmm. idea was, I mean, even in the Austrian red regulations, it says, well, of course, by the laws of war, <laughs> the, the enemy territory, enemy country has to provide for our, our army at no cost. No cost to us because they're the enemy. Uh, So technically, the the French, say, campaigning in Saxony in 1813 should pay because Saxony's an ally. But that didn't necessarily happen. may not have happened very much at all. And Mm -hmm. the the poor Saxons get marched over by everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) The French, the Russians and Prussians. The French again, the Russians and Prussians. The Austrians show up, and these poor people are uh, at their wit's end.
2: Yeah, in... You know, working on the 1813 I think r- Russian memoirs you see that the utter astonishment of um, of how much the countryside is deluded of, mm. <laughs> of, of anything really after after all these armies passed through uh, so the the reality is indeed very uh, messy and and, and harsh uh, we've talked in the beginning that the oftentimes the armies uh, did plunder the of their own populations uh, uh, uh one of the guys on the Russian side uh, Nikolai Metarevsky famously says that we blamed a lot of pillaging and plundering on the French <laughs> but you know we've done uh, as much plundering uh, during the retreat so the, you know the, the entire villages were kind of despoiled I- I- as a way of kind of both satisfying your own material maybe greed but also seeking uh, this, this these, these supplies and I think one of the points to raise is that, uh, at the Congress of Vienna, right, um, ultimately France is going of held responsible for its share of, of damage by
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: by being saddled with hundreds of millions of francs in restitutions that mm-hmm. the French were supposed to pay to that to to, to compensate for that kind of damage. So that in itself and that's only french side right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> no one asked russians or <laughs> austrians
1: to compensate the saxons right right well there's a there's a wonderful and I, i'm trying to remember the name of the memoirist this uh german soldier this confederation of the rhine soldier i think from um i think he was a hessian So hesse darmstadt not hesse Kassel. and he talks about okay well here we are we're, we're bivouacking and uh, while some of the soldiers are collecting water and others are chopping firewood some of us go to the local village to get provisions and how the soldiers would turn up into the village and they'd bring back things that were not provisions uh, in the first place and things that they didn't really need but in their in their excitement for having tossed off their rucksack after marching all day and now they're in the village and now it's kind of at their whim what they take and so they they take things bring them back to camp and then when they march on things I mean a property of local villages is just abandoned right um, so it, another item that's that gets forgotten in logistics is straw and straw is important for bedding in particular and for the construction of temporary barracks so if a unit was going to be in place for any length, I mean, two nights, or maybe even less sometimes, they would construct straw barracks, straw little huts uh, in some huge area, which, of course, if that was your cabbage field, forget that, forget your cabbages. Uh, But this this provision of straw, and for the wounded and the sick, Mm -hmm. they were supposed to lie on pallets of straw. And there were all kinds of regulations for this, most of which were hardly uh, Mm -hmm. adhered to, but...
2: Mm -hmm. I think that this uh, the difference kind of between the theory or what the regulations mm-hmm. required and what the practice uh, is, is encapsulated in one of the vignettes, and um, this is from 1814. Uh, the Russian officer is young; he, he's you know kind of young. He's just taken over the command of the I think it's company, and they're in one of the small villages um, of, uh, in France, and he hears that. Uh, a, a, there's a squad of Russian soldiers who are ransacking a building. And so he rushes there and the, it's a dark. So the sun has set and the ransacking begins. So he runs it goes in. Uh, and so he goes in and it's a dark. So it's dark also. He shouts, how dare you to do all of this? Don't you know it's against the regulation? And he describes in his memoir that he hears this voice out of the void. <laughs> do you want to get shot, sir? <laughs>
1: So right. he quickly turns and leaves. You're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And continues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you would end up with, because logistics were poor and discipline cracked or broke down, uh, you'd have not just, I mean, this happened certainly in the French army, you'd have bands of marauders who would be essentially temporary uh, groups of bandits wandering the countryside mm-hmm. uh, outside of army discipline. The the Prussians even write about this in in May of eighteen or yeah no in yes May of eighteen thirteen and, uh, and later on as these young Lantveer recruits and others are uh, they break ranks they end up out in the forest somewhere with some they collect up with some other guys and. And basically, they're brigands uh, mm-hmm.
0: prefiguring the Freikorps. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so a uh, final question, kind of a, a big picture question. Uh, one, of the, one of the questions I often ask students in historical campaigns is, do, do operations drive logistics or do logistics drive operations? For my army, which is the army of the mid-18th century in France, I think it's often fair to say op- logistics are driving operations. Um, so what do you think for the armies you study in the Napoleonic era? Ooh. I would uh, argue the other way. So, eh?
1: Yeah, I think I would too. It's, uh, I mean, obviously logistics mattered and so mm-hmm. it would, uh, if possible, you would campaign in seasons when it's going to be harvest time so that there are ripe crops that the soldiers can harvest and that the mm-hmm. horses can eat and that sort of thing. Um, but that was not always feasible. Mm-hmm. And if possible, you would, uh, if you could prepare in advance uh, so, say we take 1809, the, Napoleon is concerned, he's trying to avoid a war, but he's concerned that the Austrians go to war. So he's preparing in advance, logistically, by stocking fortresses in Bavaria. And it's advantageous to campaign along the Danube because you can use the Danube or the Elba in 1813 as transport means, right. which is cheaper, faster, easier than on, uh, on the roads in horseback or uh, wagons. So but he's doing that. He's lucky because he can campaign in Central Europe, which is fairly prosperous and, and uh, agriculturally rich. But um, he, uh, he and others are forced by circumstances to campaign at other times as well. So I, I think it's probably more in that yeah, direction.
2: And Jack and I, we've, uh, we've done a kind of study on 1806, 1807 campaign mm-hmm. in Poland, and you there I think operations drive Kind of operational goals, yes, yes, are more are, are paramount, and then logistics are kind of there to hamper and hinder uh, the operation, the reaching operational goals. But Napoleon is not necessarily, you know, kind of conducting or shaping his his actions in, in 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 order to to achieve the logistical goals. Yeah, nor is Bennington for that matter, Yeah, that's right. right. Uh-huh. That's right. And then, of course, in 1812, you were kind of uh, raised a good point, is that in 1812, Napoleon makes colossal logistical preparations, mm-hmm. something that I think needs to be pointed out, yeah, yeah. that he didn't simply rush into the campaign, he he thoroughly prepared for it, he actually took account of the rivers like Niemann and Western Divina that would allow him to actually deliver the supplies by, by that, but we also know that operationally, he quickly outstripped the yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it didn't and, stop; kept going.
1: <laughs> and, and equipping soldiers with simple things like hand mills, because there's something else that gets lost in logistics. Is okay, fine. You've now you've now harvested the wheat. Mm-hmm. How do you turn that into bread? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. you need mills to grind the wheat. And so, if you were to. To, wanting to delay the enemy army, you destroy all the local mills—be yep. they water mills or, or windmills or what have you—and then the bakeries. And then you need yeah, the bakeries. Yeah. And the one of the innovations that I think—I don't know if it was Frederick the Great or—I mean, the Austrians certainly had—were
0: I believe it's um, Friedrich's predecessor. So it's the Prussian army. But right, I think it's a right. little bit earlier
1: now. But they—they they have uh, component pieces of bakeries. Now that's, that means you have to show up with masons or other people mm-hmm. who know how to construct a bakery but you can at least have the metal frameworks and other bits and pieces that go to it and then you get the bricks and mortar and mm-hmm. whatnot when you're on site and it takes about a day or two to, to build one of these things but you could at least transport the components and have that as a, a starting point for, for the break- mm-hmm. bakeries that you'd have to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah then the portable mills and bakeries is one they're going to the red
0: thread that yeah, runs yeah. through Napoleon's <clears throat> campaign in, in Russia, where
2: he, he's constantly acquiring. Where the hell are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And I think maybe the major strategic difference is so in my army, the Fifteenth, he's not trying to conquer territory, so it makes sense that he might have logistics drive his operations. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the Napoleonic Wars, you know, you've got giant armies moving mm-hmm. across big territories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gentlemen, this has been a fascinating discussion. We've made a topic that that can often be tedious, interesting, (laughs) and uh, we're looking forward to more of your work. Thank you. Thank Thank you very much. much. I'm here with Dr. Alex Burns, who is a recent PhD graduate from West Virginia University and is currently employed at Franciscan University at Steubenville. Welcome.
3: Thank you so much. It's so good to be here, Abel.
0: So uh, we both have, have a, a connection, you more so than me, to a very important scholar, and that's Christopher Duffy. Mm. Uh, so what I wanted to start by talking about is, is first of all, who was Christopher Duffy?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a good question. Um, he was a British military historian um, who really started his career in the 1960s, um, most famous, I think, for his work on the Prussian military of Frederick the Great and the Austrian military of Maria Theresa during the 18th century. He branched out into a number of uh, different projects and, and different fields. A lot of people in Britain knew him as the, the great Jacobite or Culloden historian. Um, and from, from the 1960s through the 1990s he taught at um, the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst for Americans, basically their version of West Point. Um, just a really great scholar, incredibly prolific, over over 20 books ranging the gamut of modern military history from the 1500s all the way into writing on the uh, the 1980s that he often did under assumed names. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So uh, he has a career that, that in some ways, aside from the prolific prolific writing, is is not terribly unusual in in history writing and academia. So, what is it that makes Duffy so important to the historiography of early modern armies?
3: Absolutely. So, um, in the essay collection that we we both wrote for uh, that came out last year honoring his career, um, I sort of argued, and and I I really do think this is. His landmark contribution, he changed our understanding of 18th century warfare from a the view that it was a, a period of warfare formality with no function to trying to take these military institutions seriously, viewing them as dangerous military institutions, not just a whole bunch of guys wandering around in, like, powdered wigs and laced coats, yeah. um, and instead trying to focus on the ways that 18th century warfare was deadly serious for the men who took part, that um, it was, you know, not radically different from any other period of military history, so to say, like the Napoleonic Wars. Mm-hmm.
0: No, that's a, that's, a, that's a good way to phrase it. I, th- I think the kind of the metaphor that may land for some people is there's a, there's a sense, particularly in northern Europe, that there's this, you know, kind of uh, a period of, of lightness and air and, and French frivolity, and the militaries reflect that. But as you point out, these, these are men killing each other, very large numbers, yeah. um, and I think you're right in that he, sh- he showed a way that, that was not the traditional, um, kind of, again, that frivolous idea. Yeah. And I think he also did something very important to, that we can talk about as well. He, was, uh, he came up in an academy that was very drums and trumpets, mm. right? Yeah. And then there's um, people like Michael Howard started what is what used to be called new military history. Of course, it's not new anymore, which is to look at kind of the beyond the battlefield, the, the social aspects, the economic aspects, the psychological of armies. Mm. Um, so how did he kind of inaugurate that into his work?
3: Absolutely. So I would say knowing christopher uh, he he was to some extent resistant to that to, I mean to to his the time of his passing in november of last year he did believe that operational history mattered um but with that said he was increasingly focused on the social history of these armies in his writing career um trying to understand these militaries as serious institutions full of real people, not caricatures, he focused on the common soldiers and their world and sort of inaugurated a branch of scholarship that um, people like fairly fairly famous historians like Ilya Berkovich and Katrine and Sasha Mubius, who are currently working on uh, common soldiers kind of point to him as like the father of this, of this school, mm-hmm. um, essentially trying to say, well, yeah, the, these men, they're part of the military, they have, a, they have a military life, but let's look at them as people, let's look at, at the, the backgrounds they come from, what sustains their motivations when they're in the military. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so let's, uh, let's dive into some of this, and let's talk about some of the avenues that Duffy uh, explored. I, I, as both of us are, are 18th century military yeah. historians, me of the French, you of uh, various uh, armies, including the Prussian and British. Yeah. So, one of the big, great problems we face, I think perhaps me more than you, but still across the board, is our soldiers are mostly silent. Mm-hmm. They are generally illiterate. Yeah. So, for, that's why for generations we relied on officer's memoirs, yeah, exactly. and we lost the voice of the common soldier. Yeah. So, so, how do you, as a scholar of early modern armies, Find the voice of the soldier when you might at best have, let's say, five accounts from a soldier in an army of 100,000. Yeah,
3: absolutely. No, so this is is one of the great questions. This is a question that historians, I'm happy to say, are increasingly answering with a great deal of confidence and strength. You've got to keep in mind that in, in states like Prussia, North German Protestant states, the population is probably 60% literate. And so it's not necessarily that these men are illiterate as to to why these documents don't survive. Um, You have writings from these soldiers. The difference is because you and I are writing at a time before the full flowering and birth of nationalism, these writings are not given the same sort of weight and importance by... The, the family members who have. They don't save them. It's not like, oh, my, I have a picture of my grandfather who fought in World War II. You don't have that same connection of the right. state and the military and the men who serve in the military as being honorable and patriotic. It's not that they weren't viewed in these ways. Certainly some people at, at the time did view military services as being something that was was honorable even for common soldiers. But because they don't have this same connection to the nation... They're not saved in large numbers. And so for my military, um, not my military, but you know what I'm trying to say. The military I study, the Prussians, um, we have something on the order of 80 to 100 letters from common soldiers in the 18th century, which is a lot more than we thought we had 20 years ago, but compared to even the Napoleonic Wars, it's a tiny sampling of writings. Right. And so you have to really dig down and analyze these documents. And, and one of the things I, I did in my dissertation was looking at the way that we can find additional voices in these letters. So maybe, again, if we're talking about common soldiers, maybe like 40 or 45% of these men might have been literate, which means that over half are not, but those men will still include their voices in the body of these letters by going to a soldier who's writing a letter home and saying, Hey, we're from the same village. Can you ask how my wife is doing? I looked at a, a particular letter in, in the Prussian State Archive in Dahlem that when the main body of the letter had ended, there were eight postscript messages, I imagine, from, from non-literate soldiers or at least from soldiers who didn't have time to write a letter. Right. And each of them had a very specific question like, last time I heard from my family my cow was sick, did it recover? Um, You know, my wife hasn't written me a letter in six months. What's up? You know, so we get windows into the lives of these men in a way that is maybe not as statistically significant as the American Civil War or the Napoleonic era. Right. But it's still a window into their lives and you have to try and, from the sources you have, reconstruct those men who, who don't write.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned uh, you, you do a lot of work on the Prussians, and you are here doing uh, work kind of on the intersection of religion and military service. Absolutely. So, what are you finding out about the religion of these men?
3: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> famously, a British member of parliament in the late 18th century says, What does religion signify for soldiers? They have no more religion than my horses. Um, and, you know, com- compared to that, you know, kind of chauvinistic perspective, maybe, these men really are. In certain circumstances, deeply religious, in the Prussian military, by the time you get to the Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War, we call it in America, in the 1750s, there have been chaplains really trying to evangelize in the army for like 30 years and they've done a lot of work they've made the army into more of a religious institution than it was in the earlier part of the 18th century a similar process is happening in the british military in the in the american continental army but it's happening especially for the british later in the century the methodists john and charles wesley Um, they are doing this same kind of process the first Methodist societies in Britain actually are in the army Um, and so these men again looking at their writings looking in some cases some of them leave memoirs you do really see that religion forms an incredibly important part of their life Um, and not just battlefield fatalism like oh please don't let me get shot but like they are they are quoting scripture in their letters and they are often actually writing not just home to their families, but also to important religious figures in their in their particular denomination or religious mm-hmm. movement.
0: So you said something that's fascinating to me, and, and uh, coming at this from the French side, um, we generally lack even the few sources yeah. uh, that, that the North German states have. And the oppression I think we get, certainly of French history overall, but, but probably true in the army as well, is that it, during this century, Religion is kind of being systematically removed from the public sphere if we want to use the Habermasian context Mm, now That is greatly overblown. Right, the enlightenment was not atheistic for the most part In fact, there was a there was a Catholic enlightenment. Of course, it's illegal to be a Protestant in France so Um, so Given that 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 as 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 far as I've discovered I don't think there are official chaplains in the 18th century French army would you describe what you're talking about as a Protestant process through what you say, for example, like the Methodism, what we often call the Great Awakening, um, or do you think that that exists to some degree in Catholic states and we just we just haven't found it?
3: So obviously you're better qualified to speak the French case than I am. What I can say is in the Austrian army, there is a fairly dedicated chaplaincy, not just of... Um, Catholics, but also a, a small number of Orthodox priests are, are sort of traveling with the military. Mm-hmm. Um, the Russian military also has a fairly established chaplaincy. So does the Swedish military at this time. Famously, the Swedes all, often go through like a like the mass or the Eucharist, like right and, and have communion right before right. they go into battle. Right. Um, even in the American Army, uh, the Continental Army during our War of Independence, you have Certainly, there are, like, you know, Baptist and other ministers with the army, but there are even um, for the Catholic soldiers who come who come down from Canada, like Hazen's second uh, uh, Canadian regiment, um, they have a Catholic priest who, who travels down from Canada with them. So mm-hmm. I would say in the armies I study, it's largely a Protestant phenomenon, um, and I think also the. Lengthy, sometimes quoting of scripture can be a kind of a Protestant phenomenon as well because of the high place of scripture and Protestant theology at the time. Um, but I don't know that it's exclusively.
0: Yeah, and that would make sense. I think probably what we're missing, so it, it's been a while since I've looked at this, but in the French army, I do not recall the last time in the 1760s they do major reforms. I don't believe there's an official chaplain billet. Okay. On the other hand, they may not have needed it sure. because they could just you know, ping the oratorians or Dominicans yeah, to grab yeah. a priest. Um, but one thing I do notice, now granted I don't, I don't have soldiers' letters, but officers do not speak in terms of scripture. Yeah. So I, I've recently translated uh, Guibert's manuscript, 250,000 words, mm-hmm. one scripture reference. Yeah. So something has clearly changed among the literate in France that, that perhaps the Protestants are going a different direction.
3: Actually, I, I would say when it comes to officers and particularly highly placed officers, it's probably the trend in the Protestant states as well. Okay. Um, so you have the enlisted men are having kind of this flowering of, of religious devotion, but like a, a sergeant that I'm going to quote in my paper here at, at the CRE this weekend, um, named named G.S. Liebler, he writes in his diary, "Man, I'm so excited! Not only are the common soldiers coming out to hear, you know, our our." chaplains speak and hear hymns, but some of the officers are too. So there is this perception that like this is mostly for the common soldiers, and the officers are more skeptical. Yeah. Um, Frederick the Great famously says before the Battle of Zorndorf to um, the the cavalry or cuirassier general Seidlitz, um, and there's a reference to God in the general orders of the day, and he says, "Oh, that's just in there for the wagon drivers." <laughs> so you do you do absolutely have this. Um, Maybe, I, again, I wouldn't say atheistic, but, but more skeptical or more deistic or, or at the very least um, not overt uh, theistic mm-hmm. interpretation on the part of officers, even in Protestant states.
0: Yeah, and I think that's interesting that we're kind of, in some ways, we're almost looking at a popular religiosity, yeah. again, particularly in Protestant states. Yeah. Um, I don't think you see the same degree of devotional awakening in France until the next century. Sure. Uh, when of course it does happen in the mid nineteenth century, uh, but yeah, it's interesting that these these officers who are steeped in the Enlightenment and clearly have all read the Bible in France, they just they don't care to use metaphors from it. Mm-hmm. They prefer instead to use metaphors from Greek and Roman sources. Sure. Um, do you do you see the same thing among the the armies that you study?
3: Are they are they going straight to the classical sources? I mean, certainly the higher leads are. I mean, if you look at Frederick's writings. Um and, and not just his military writings, but but also you know his, his poetry and things like this. He frequently contrasts Christian examples with examples from like the you know the Greco Roman classical world in ways that are not very flattering to the scriptural examples and pretty flattering to the like he he prefers Trajan to the Bible, right? Or or he, he prefers to read. Uh, You know, Marcus Aurelius' meditations rather than scripture. Right. Um, So, yeah, I I guess I would say it depends. There was a a long-standing historiographical argument in the German literature that suggested there were essentially two schools of thought, like a humane uh, neoclassicist school of thought, led by Christoph von Schwerin, a field marshal Mm -hmm. who was killed at the Battle of Prague in 1757, and then a more... um, Scripturally focused and uh, like re- Christian religious tradition that is centered around the um, like the Dessau clan, basically, like uh, Leopold von Anhalt right. Dessau, the, the Alter Dessauer, uh, who reforms the Prussian military during the reign of Frederick's father. So, yeah, I, I think in Protestant states, you get a little bit of both, and it's sometimes directly in tension, um, but uh, certainly among the enlisted men. They're reading more scripture than, you know, classical poetry. Right. right.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, it, there could be practical things at work, right? It's probably easier to get a Bible than a copy of Voltaire. <laughs> probably so. <laughs> right. Yeah. Especially in places where it might be banned. Yeah. Um, let's let's shift to, to a different theme on, on kind of the same bigger picture. Um, one of the big things that's happening during this century is that we evolve armies. Mm-hmm. And we evolve them in a way that goes from... A very processional kind of fighting, um, you know. A, a, a Swiss fighter in fifteen ten would probably recognize an army in sixteen ninety, sure right? Uh, with with you know much more artillery, but that same soldier would not recognize armies by seventeen eighty. Mm-hmm. So, the Prussians really start this. The Prussians are kind of the paradigm that start doing things differently. Mm-hmm. And we kind of know the basic story, right? The Prussians, they're 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 small, so they build up a war chest, they're disciplined to offset numbers. Um, what else are they doing that, you know, maybe doesn't make it in the YouTube video summary that's helping to to make them the paradigm during the century.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a as a social military historian, I would say they're recruiting units in in ways that are Building like small unit cohesion um, and a lot of like, like more positive inner leadership than the quote you normally get from Frederick, which is you should fear your officers more than the enemy. And obviously, you know, mm-hmm. for a long time, professional historians kind of looked at that with a little bit of skepticism. Yeah, it's clearly hyperbole. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I would say tactically, though, it's actually the Austrians who are sort of on the, the bleeding edge of this during the Seven Years' War. Um, I mean, linear warfare, there's a perception the armies just kind of line up and fight, right? The, profession, the processional, excuse me, uh, idea that you referenced a minute ago. During the Seven Years War, that changes. Um, and we see a transition from the entire line of battle being engaged to small groups of units being detailed off to complete specific tasks. And so from, from the time of World War One on um particularly german historians have claimed that this is the watershed uh moment in in modern military history that you have units that are operationally grouped often with artillery support designed to go do a designated task and you see mm-hmm. this in the austrian sort of great a, a first example of it at hochkirk in 1758 the prussians have adopted this very quickly and are doing the same thing by the end of the war and in in 1762 at battles like Birkersdorf. Um, where, where the Prussian army attacks in essentially like f- four or five different places on the battlefield, each group of units attacking has a specific designated mission that they're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And so in in my kind of essay reviewing Christopher's uh, contributions to the literature um, in the in, in Feshrift that came out last year that we both wrote for, I tried to look at this phenomenon and, and the way that Christopher explored it, essentially showing that the Seven Years' War, it, you don't see things like permanent corps being established, but you do see a lot of movement in that direction, ad hoc combined arms units that are being created for a course of a battle, sometimes for a course of a campaign or a couple of months mm-hmm. that are designed to accomplish specific tasks that are disconnected from the rest of the battle line. And, th- and that is something fairly new and fairly radical.
0: Yeah, and I think the, the, the Austrians and the Prussians have different routes to the same goal. Whereas in Prussia, you have a tradition dating back more or less to the foundation of the state, which was 1701, um, where you have a, a monarch or the people around him issuing what we would recognize now as doctrine, what they call regulations. Yeah. Whereas the Austrians develop, as as far as I'm aware, the first modern general staff, Graf sure. Kriegsrat. Yeah, but in France you don't have either of those things. Sure. And you have you still have a proprietary system, and 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 my contribution mm-hmm. to this collection was to show that the the French are late to this party because of issues that they cannot change. You know, until they start losing wars in a big way. They cannot change the system they have, which, which is basically to call up units, those units are owned by their commanders, you cannot tell a, a proprietor how to run his unit, um, and, and it's not until after the, the Seven Years War that you really start to see the French develop what the Austrians and Prussians have been doing for decades. Um, and I think that gets at some of the some of the nuance that a lot of people don't build into this period. Yeah. That these are different states, different cultures. They have different approaches, and sometimes the battles look the same. Sometimes, you know, a, a, a Prussian uh, musket fighter looks like a French musket fighter except the uniform. But they're they're acting in very different ways, mm-hmm. and they're thinking in very different ways. And I think uh, I, I think. What Duffy did more than anything was to show some of that and to show how the ideas of the Enlightenment, uh, what what has recently, more recently been referred to as the military Mm -hmm. Enlightenment, has been uh, impregnated in these institutions. Uh, One of the frustrations I've had in historiography, there's kind of a a strange gap in military historiography, um, and it has a lot to do with the post-Vietnam era in Anglophone literature, right, where, where there's a strong sense in academia that, that military history is something that, it, you know, even uh, maybe a little stronger to say, but, like, basically the fascists do, right, that pro-Vietnam War people do. Um, and Duffy worked through that period and I think helped work through some of the barriers that were there. Yeah. Uh, but in some ways, we still have those barriers, mm-hmm. right? As you pointed out, there is still a sense among lots of people that, you know, these soldiers were dregs. They were the worst of society. Uh, Friedrich famously said, you know, f- fear, you know, they should fear the officers. Um, you got the, the axiomatic, no no sex workers, dogs, or soldiers in public spaces, right? Um, so how is that
3: image wrong? Sure. I mean I, I guess I, I would say it's wrong First of all I, I want to go back and, and address what you said kind of with the literature cuz I yeah. cuz I do think there there is maybe not I mean I hopefully no one would would call you and I fascists today but <laughs> I, I do think there is still kind of this divide in 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 at conferences like the conference that this where this weekend, you can still kind of see it. There are panels that are more operationally focused and then maybe more social history focused. And um, I think some of the best historians can maybe try and combine both of these two and, and, and show the reality of the past in, in both the operational and the social setting. Mm-hmm. As far as, um, you know, the... Soldiers being the dregs of society, I guess I would say it depends, as you said before, widely on where you're talking about in Europe at the time. Um, there are you know, laws in France and Britain and Prussia that do look radically different from one another. Um, one of the things that I examined in the course of my dissertation research was petitions that tavern owners would send the British government saying, please don't quarter soldiers on our tavern anymore. They're breaking all the pottery, like, leave us alone. Right. And so it's not necessarily that they think the soldiers are the dregs of society. It's, it's more of a um, trying to prevent a property loss type situation, you know, when, when they get rowdy in the evenings. Mm-hmm. It, regardless, though, in, in Britain, in Prussia, in a lot of these other states... Soldiers are a daily sight for for people who live in urban environments. I mean, they are ever-present When soldiers are not on the job like on watch in places like Prussia, they're out working in the civilian economy Um, and when uh, I think it's the like the Comte de Mirabeau who goes to to Prussia like late in the eighteenth century. He yep. says, "Man, when I go to Berlin, you can tell who the out of work soldier or who the off duty soldiers yeah. are. Um, they're doing a variety of civilian tasks. Some are like cobblers." Guibert says the same thing. He calls, i forget the exact phrase he uses—but he basically calls it an arsenal. Yeah, exactly. And so you have for the first time post sixteen eighty. Um, you start to see soldiers in in with the civilian population, but you can quickly identify who is and who is not a soldier, just visually, because of the uniforms. Right. Um, And so there are all these great, you know, like woodcut prints of a soldier who's wearing his regimental coat, but he's like selling, you know, brushes to clean your clothes uh, on the side of the road. And so military... Imagery, military life um, in places like Britain and, and Prussia, not just Prussia, really begin to proliferate in civilian society during these times. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the Prussian case, it, it's probably a little bit more visible because their soldiers are not kept in barracks in Prussia. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in, in Britain, Parliament, by the time you get to the Revolutionary War, starts to say, well, let's keep soldiers sort of concentrated, let's build large-scale barracks for them and keep them away from urban centers.
0: Yeah, whereas in France, you have a very different model where essentially the old regime doesn't have an army. They have garrisons and fortresses, but they do not have a field army during peacetime. Um, so you don't necessarily see those same things. And, and the tavern owners in Paris, uh, they really hate the bakers. Sure. Because the bakers, you know, they're, they're physically fit and they fight with everybody. So I think you I think maybe you have a little bit different social um, construct there. And of course, France, uh, I, I I know France, I don't know if it's fair to say comparatively, but France definitely has one of the first hospice systems mm. uh, for soldiers, and not just you know, the famous Anvalide in paris. Right. there there are local versions too. yeah, and the French are are axiomatically the best at battlefield medicine, such as it is. yeah. Um, so interestingly, perhaps in a society that, that might have cared less about common people in a very large population of 20 million, they do. Yeah. There, there's an enlightenment sense that the, the the soldier deserves care even after he's done being a soldier. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating time period. Um, let's uh, One final question that's very, very general. Uh, again, we, we often fight the stereotype that we study War in a way that doesn't matter. It's obsolete. It's linear. It's boring. It's pointless. Right? People fighting positional battles for no reason. Um, so, what would you tell people about 18th century warfare that might perhaps have that negative view?
3: Yeah, I, I guess I ha- have two re- responses to that, Abel. And my first response is kind of glib, and it's <laughs> go read Clausewitz. And if yeah. you read Clausewitz, you'll see that. Frederick and the 18th century Prussian army are everywhere in on war, right? I mean, he he looks back to the 18th centuries being the the genesis of some of some of the new practices of warfare that he's talking about, um, and he he says things like there are marches in the 18th century that have still not been paralleled in our own time, like like Prince. Henri of Prussia dashes like 144 kilometers in a three-day stretch. and He's right. just really blown away. Klaus is really blown away by this. So I guess, um, first of all, yeah, if, you, if you've not read it, read it, look for the references to Frederick. I think you'll be surprised. Right. Um, in a less glib and kind of, kind of got you way, I guess I would say if you are intrigued by warfare in the napoleonic era if you're intrigued by warfare in the american 19th century this is the period where all of those practices come to be um, this is the period that if warfare in the napoleonic and american civil war era is an engine people like frederick and washington and Gabert, they build that engine Napoleon, he comes through and he really fine tunes the engine, he brings it a humming perfection. Um, but the core processes that create the, the the sort of this really fascinating period of warfare in the late eighteenth and early nineteenth century, you can draw them, their long roots, the, the beginnings of these institutional practices back into the eighteenth century. And so as a result, I really do agree with um, historians like, Mark Danley and Patrick Spielman when they call the Seven Years of War the father of the modern world. I, I don't know if that's true in like a grand metaphysical sense but certainly in a military sense yeah. in, in a in military institutional sense I would say there's there's something to that.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent metaphor. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion, Dr. Burns thank you. Thanks for having me on. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast Broad Gage Gossips where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.